Well, today is True Wealth Part 3, and we're springing from Ephesians 3, chapter 3, verse 8. Ephesians 3, 8 says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Well, once upon a time... Adam was the richest man in the world. Okay, he was the only man in the world, but he literally had it all. His balance sheet was all assets and equity. No liabilities and therefore no worries. He was perfectly healthy, intelligent. He had a perfect relationship with his wife and with his God. He must have gone around every day just saying the words perfect and awesome on a regular basis. Adam was wealthy by every measure and every meaning of the word. But then the happy couple listened to the wrong investment advisor. They risked everything to gain what they could not have, lost what they could have kept, and took down the whole human race in one fell swoop. And it makes me want to punch Adam in the face. His assets went to zero. His liabilities skyrocketed. And his equity in heaven vanished. He became so morally insolvent that a hundred lifetimes of hard labor could never pay off his debt. And since death had been threatened by a truth-telling God, and since death threatened This once happy couple, they tried every strategy imaginable to get their hands on that tree of life. We have got to get our hands on that tree of life. And you can see them now crawling military style on their belly through briars and weeds to try to make a sneak attack on the tree of life. And passing them goes a smiling serpent. But every vain attempt was met by a flaming sword that turned every direction. It had to turn every direction because they and their offspring would come from every direction. The only way for the unhappy pair to recover was to admit failure, file bankruptcy, and throw themselves on the mercy of the court. You see, the bad news this morning is their bankrupt condition is our condition outside of Christ. It became our condition as we are their offspring. The good news this morning is God was not willing to leave us in this brokenness. And so we fast forward about 4,000 years when the Apostle Paul wrote these words, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Paul loves that word rich. He uses it seven times in the book of Ephesians alone. He loves the word wealth to describe what God has done for every single believer. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ laid aside his royal robes of 
deity. He laid aside the access to his deity and his power, never becoming less than God, but living life as a man. And, and then he came here and he rolled up his sleeves and he went to work on your behalf and on my behalf. He went to work to earn back the assets that were lost in the garden by the first Adam. And then he topped it all off by paying off all of our debts in one fell swoop on the cross at Calvary. It was the ultimate bailout plan. And it was made possible by the unfathomable riches of Christ. When Paul says this in chapter 3, verse 8, I believe with all of my heart that he has in mind chapters 1 and 2. I believe that he has in mind these unfathomable riches that he's already discussed in these preceding chapters. And so that's where we've been to discover them. And I'm using the analogy of direct deposits into our spiritual bank account. And we've seen five so far, and they all came from chapter 1. We're going to add three more today in the conclusion from chapter 2, which has been read for us and prayed to us this morning. So three or more then to complete the list of these direct deposits put into our spiritual bank accounts by a very gracious and loving God. So number six, and it's really just one But it has several components. Number six is we were born again and raised up and seated with Christ. Put all of those together because they all happen in the same moment of time. We were born again, raised up and seated with Christ. This is uh, written for us here in verses four through seven. After the black backdrop of our sin and depravity of one through three, God interjects himself. But God, verse four. Because of mercy, because of love, not because of us, not because we deserved it, not because we were lovely, but because God is a God of love. Even when we were dead and rebellious in our violations against his law, even in that state, not seeking God, not righteous, not wanting a relationship with Christ. In fact, going over the cliff of destruction away from God, it was in that very scene, verse 5 happens, he made us alive together, look at it, look at it, with Christ. United us to Christ and his very own resurrection. His was physical, here ours was spiritual. And verse 6, raised us up and seated us with him. Made alive there, of course, is the aspect of being born again, right? It's, it's uh, the theological term of regeneration, where God alone, by the power of His Holy Spirit, regenerates a dead soul and gives it spiritual life. The same spiritual life that Adam and Eve lost when they sinned against God. Now restored, recreated, remade to what God intended all along. That's what made alive speaks of here in verse 5. We may illustrate it this way. It's as if God the Father in, had, came to the dead, the dead patient who has flatlined. They've coded and he comes with two paddles. Paddle in each hand. And paddle in one hand is God the Holy Spirit. And paddle in the other hand is the gospel itself. And God applies those and 
boom, shocks that person to life. Quickens us from the dead. Makes us alive with Christ who can never, ever, ever die again. Hallelujah. Born again, raised and seated. Raised us up with him, it says. This is perfectly illustrated in the Gospel of John when Jesus came to the tomb of Lazarus who had died physically and was buried and wrapped in grave clothes. And Jesus says, Lazarus, he was a friend of Jesus. They knew each other personally. He had heard that name said to him before. He had heard that voice. Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man came forth. And and then Jesus says, you know what? We need to unbind him, unloose him, and let him live. And that's the idea here. And this raised us up. So we've been made alive, but certainly we're not going to say say dead, right? We're not going to stay flat. We're not going to lay there and say, well, I'm alive, but I think I'll just stay in this horizontal position for the rest of my life until I get to go to heaven. No, no, we're made alive and stood up. Stand up on your feet. Get upright, (laughs) child of God, and begin to walk with God and begin to work for God. He raised us up. How ridiculous would it have been for Lazarus to stay in the grave to keep wearing those smelly, rotten grave clothes? Unbind him and let him loose. And that's really a picture of our sanctification. As a person comes to Christ and is given this new life, it is the job of the family to unbind him and let him loose. It's the job of the rest of us to begin to help that person peel off those smelly grave clothes and to live a life for Christ. But all in this number six event here, there's even a third element here, seated with him. Made alive, raised up, and seated with Him. So spiritually, we are seated with Christ. Well, where is Christ? He's at the Father's right hand. And we're seated with Him there. And this really speaks of and alludes to our authority in Christ as believers. The authority that is vested in us by Christ. And it also anticipates our reigning with Christ, does it not? Reigning with Him in the millennial kingdom. Reigning with Him forever and ever in the eternal kingdom. All of this is alluded to in our being seated with Christ. We have three kids and they're all, they're all grown now. But our oldest is, uh, I think he's going to be 24 this summer. And so about 20 years ago, we were at my mom and dad's place in Tennessee where they get... Lots of rain and grass grows a lot. And so my dad had a big yard and big, big uh, John Deere lawnmower uh, to mow. And it's kind of a, just an ongoing thing. You're just mowing all the time. And, and I remember so vividly when uh, Caleb was about four years old. And, and I, would, I love mowing. I just, you know, sense of accomplishment. I, I, just, I just love that. And it's a nice ride mower. And so we'd get out there and, and I'd put him on the seat with me, right? He's sitting right there in the seat. And there's plenty of room. And he's holding the, he's holding the steering wheel. And he's just loving this. I mean, we'd do this for hours. Because he, he, he thinks he's in charge, right? He's, he thinks he's doing it. And, and dad is right there with him. And that's just a picture for me of this. Seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Well, look at this uh, location here. I mean, I hate to belabor it, but if we miss it, we really have missed everything in this series. <laughs> because the unfathomable riches are all in Christ. And brother, you said it so well. What a... What a segue into this whole message. Verse 5, with Christ. Verse 6, with Him. Verse 6 again, with Him. Verse 6 again, in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, in Christ Jesus. And, And just in case you missed it, verse 10. 
We are his workmanship created where? In Christ Jesus. And that's not, he's not speaking of our physical creation there. He's speaking of our, of our spiritual creation, our recreation. It happened in Christ Jesus. You want to know what the number one rule is in the business of spiritual riches? Well, it's the same as the number one rule in real estate. Location, location, location. The number one rule in all spiritual riches is in Christ Jesus. You can't get a crumb anywhere else. There is no nourishment, no riches, no diamond, no jewel, no life anywhere else outside the boundaries of the eternal Son of God. And so biblical evangelical Christianity is the only truth in the world. It is the only way to the Father. And every other system of belief and every other religion in the world is a direct descent into hell itself. There are not many roads to heaven. There is one road to heaven and it is the road paved by the blood of Christ. It is the road labeled Jesus Christ. All of these riches are found only in him. What a wonderful thing to think when God raised us up, made us alive, seated us and created us in Christ Jesus. That we have now embraced that which will make us spiritually unfathomably wealthy for eternity. When I read Ephesians 2, I cannot help but think of the third verse of one of my favorite hymns. It's a hard hymn to sing, but the lyrics are just phenomenal. Written by Charles Wesley, that third verse of And Can It Be. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, I rose, the dungeon flamed with light. I rose up, went forth, and followed thee. And can it be this diffusing of a quickening ray from heaven itself into the dungeon of our depravity and our sin. This is how wealthy you are. Dear brother or sister in Christ. Number seven on our list, I call total access to God through Him. Total access to God through Him. Look at verse 18. You have the whole Trinity in verse 18 of chapter 2. For through Him, and that's Christ, we both, Paul's referring to Jews and Gentiles. That's the, the great revelation in the new covenant is Gentiles have equal footing, equal access, equal status. For through Christ, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Father's the ultimate destination. He's the supreme being of the triune Godhead in his activity. And so he is our stopping point. We, we get there through Christ and it's in the one Holy Spirit. He speaks there of that access that has been accomplished for us through Christ. Look at chapter 3 and verse 12. 
The end of verse 11 refers to Christ Jesus our Lord. In verse 12, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. And so it's not just any old access, is it? It's not just some run-of-the-mill access and authority. He now describes it further with these great words of boldness and confidence, openness, unrestrained, nothing holding me back. I have all access. I have total access. I can go anytime I want to the very throne room of God because of Jesus Christ. And that sounds wonderful to us. We're probably used to it. You know, we kind of get used to the truths of the gospel. But I want you to understand that this total access is also cast against a backdrop of no access. Of no ability to come confidently and boldly to the throne of grace. Let me show you this in verse 12. Look at verse 12 as we think about the backdrop of this no access. Separate, separate from Christ. Excluded, cut off from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers, ignorant, unknown, outcast to the covenants of promise. Possessing zero hope and without God in the world. You didn't come into the world knowing God. You didn't come into the world trusting God in Christ. You were without God in this wicked and wretched world. That's the backdrop. And then verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus. But even as we continue to think of the the no excess, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Look at verse 13. You were formerly far off. He's referring to these Gentiles. You were far off. Look at verse 14. He speaks of the dividing wall. Say more about that in a moment. Look at verse 15. He describes that we were at enmity with God. Look at verse 17. You were far away, Paul says. He came and preached peace to you who were far away. Of course, Paul has the temple layout in mind here. This is an illustration from us that comes right from Solomon's temple. And it was in his day, Herod's temple, of course. And in the big temple courts and vicinity, you had a series of exclusions. You had a series of reminders that you do not have access to God. You cannot come boldly. Before the very presence of His Shekinah glory. It started with the court of the Gentiles. So we're talking a massive area. Many, many acres. And there was an area called the court of the Gentiles. And this was as far as the Gentiles could go. And it was separated by a dividing wall. That's what Paul is referring to here. There was this barrier. And this wall stood maybe five or six feet high. And it separated the Gentiles from the Jews. God is for the whole world. So we want the Gentiles to worship the one true and living God at his temple in Jerusalem. But they can only go so far because they're Gentiles. And on this dividing wall, you would have a sign that said to the Gentiles as a warning. If you cross this wall, you do so under the threat of death. You are excluded from this area. If you go further there in the temple grounds, you would find the court of women. 
the court of Jewish women. It was a special court. This was as far as they could go. This is where they would gather to worship and pray. Then, of course, you would have the court of Israel or the court of Jewish men. And as we go along, even in spatial terms, we're getting closer and closer to the holy of holies. But the court of Jewish men, they could only go so far. And then you came to the holy place. And the holy place was that area out in front of the Holy of Holies. The holy place had the brazen altar where the sacrifices were made. But only a priest could go into the holy place. Male priests from the tribe of Levi of the line of Aaron were legally allowed to go into the holy place. And then, of course, the the place of all places, the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go one time a year with blood to go behind the veil of the temple that guarded the Shekinah glory of God as he dwelt with his people. This is what Paul has in mind as he writes to these Gentiles and he describes the all access that has been granted to us because of Jesus Christ. And now look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You have been treated like a high priest. You can come now all the way into the Holy of Holies behind the veil that was torn from top to bottom at the crucifixion of Christ and you are welcome into the holy presence of God and you will live to tell about it. (laughs) This is an amazing wealth that he has given to us. This is an unspeakable riches to us as, as Gentiles that we anywhere, anytime, any moment of any day have access to the King of Kings. And he wants us there and he hears us. Can I just be honest with you this morning? You really should pray more. Jesus Christ died so we could pray. Right? He died so we would have this all access, this open access. And how the world yearns for such things, right? I mean, how much would a sports nut pay to have all access into the huddle of their favorite team? Or into meetings before the game? How much would a... Would a music fan pay to have that backstage pass, that all access to whatever celebrity? How much would a, a, a budding executive pay to be able to sit in on the boardrooms of their most admired corporations in America? How does that compare to all access to the King of Kings? We really should pray more. Every prayer is welcome. Every prayer is heard and answered. There is no request that is too small, no request that is too large, no request that is too mundane. There is no confession that is out of bounds. There is no confession that is bad timing or shocking to the all-knowing God. I thought of a phrase this morning, a little simple rhyme, made to pray. It ought to just be stamped on our souls. We were made to pray. Will you say it with me? Made to pray. Made to pray. Remade to pray. Every Christian is convicted when you preach about prayer because every Christian knows we do not pray as we ought and as much as we ought. And I just want to encourage you this morning once again by the unfathomable riches of Christ that God has given you total access. That is wealth number seven.
Finally, number eight. On our list of eight, our final direct deposit into our spiritual accounts is we are growing together in Him. Growing together in Him. Look at chapter 2 and verses 21 and 22. Again, referring to Christ, in whom the whole building, that's you, the living building, the stones are alive, the bricks, they talk. The temple is no longer physical stones, it's living stones, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple. Where? In the Lord. I mean, three times in these two verses. Here it is again. In whom you also, ye, it's plural, ye also are being built together, built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So the triune Godhead is all mentioned here. Three times it's in Jesus Christ. Together is mentioned twice. I can't help but think about our, our elder retreat that we just had. And yes, it was very easy for me to visualize the skunk this morning. <clears throat> he materialized about 10 feet away from the little road I was walking on. And I encouraged him to get further away with some nice-sized rocks, which he did. But I can't help but think about this, our retreat, in context of this, being fitted together, growing together. And there's eight of us there in the room. I just look around the room. I said, wow, we are all so different from one another. And God is fitting us together. And I just look around the room and I just think, eight ordinary men. <laughs> right? Strengths and weaknesses. And, and, and that is a microcosm of the whole, of course. Part of our riches is not only that we get to grow in Christ. But part of it is that we get to do it together. And this is essential in growing in Christ. Let me look at a couple of more verses. Turn to chapter 4. We'll borrow from 4 for just a moment. Because Paul comes back to this. Chapter 4. And uh, down in verse 11, he begins to talk about these offices and these these men, these gifted men that God has, that Christ has given the church, apostles, prophets, we believe those who are first century offices that are now closed, and then evangelists and pastor teachers that are permanent offices in the church. But why did he give these men, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, that's you, for the work of service or ministry? Why do we need saints doing the work of ministry? Well, to build up, to build up the body of Christ. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You see, there's no isolation here. There's no independent Christians here. It's interdependent Christians. And we're, we're growing together to this measure of Christ. Verse 14, no longer to be children tossed here and there and misled by deceitful teachers and false teachers. But verse 15, speaking the truth in love, this, that's you and me to one another. We are to tell each other the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. All of that to get to verse 16. <clears throat> From whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies 
according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So Paul has changed analogies from the building and bricks being fitted together to now the human body with our knee joints and elbows and shoulders and hips and tendons and ligaments and muscles and bones and fingers and toes. And and now that is the picture of the body of Christ where every body part is necessary and needed and every body part is connected and united. And we don't just, you know, you don't just grow up. You know, your arm doesn't just grow, right? Can you imagine just my arm is growing? <laughs> you know, a little baby, only thing growing is his arm. The rest of him staying the same. No, that baby grows up together, right? Every body part grows at the same pace and same rate together. You grow into this Christ-likeness. And that's what the body of Christ is. We're doing this as a team, as a unit, as a family, where everyone is connected and everyone is needed and everyone is necessary if this growth is to happen. And so let me say to you, fellow independents, <laughs> let me say to you, fellow loners, let me say to you, fellow uh, like being at home types, homebodies, yes, you and I, we cannot grow into maturity in Christ by ourselves. It cannot happen. Can I get an amen? (laughs) You are not going to become what God wants you to become isolated from the body of Christ. It is impossible. The sad thing is some Christians try to do it, but they are deceiving themselves because of pride. The homebound, not church united Christian is really walking in a form of pride that says, I am fine by myself, or I am fine with just my spouse or just my family. That is not how God designed it. The lone wolf is a dead wolf, and the lone ranger is a lonely ranger. We are a family, we are a body, and we are connected to one another. So what you do back on the 10th row, five seats over, what you do affects everyone else in the room, just like stubbing your big toe affects the rest of your existence. You're not an island unto yourself. Your righteousness and your sin affects everyone in the body, just like what you do in your family affects everyone in your family. You will never find just you and God in the Bible. That is not Christianity. That is not in the Bible. This exclusively private, personal thing. It's just me and God. That is not the New Testament. We might say it this way. If Christ is the head, then we are the body. So you cannot... Acknowledge and confess Christ as the head of the church without acknowledging and confessing that you are an individual part of the body of the church. They go together. You can't have it just one way. So I say it this way, you know, if we can't be in heaven just let, we're made alive, we're raised up, but he's going to leave us here for a while to be tested, to suffer, to minister, all those things. If we can't go to heaven right now, well, the next best thing is to grow into Christ's likeness together that's the next best thing this is a little taste of heaven on earth the church 
where we get to grow into the likeness of our Savior that we love with all of our hearts, but we don't do it alone. We do it together. That's our eighth and final direct deposit. It is so, so glorious. I cannot imagine where I would be without Christ. And I cannot imagine where I would be without the church. Those are two horrible scenarios that I don't even want to fathom. So by way of review now, all eight... We have been chosen before the foundation of the world for salvation in Christ. We have been predestined to adoption as sons through Christ. We have been redeemed, number three, and forgiven because of Christ. We have been sealed and secured forever with the Holy Spirit in Christ. We have been made alive, raised, and seated with Christ. We have all access to the triune God through Christ. And we have been granted this treasure of growing up into his likeness and doing so together. Put all of this together and that is the unfathomable wealth possessed, listen, by every single believer. No matter how weak, how young, how feeble, every believer possesses all of this wealth and it was given to us by God through Christ. So why do we live like poor beggars? And why are we ever tempted to love money? Seriously? And why are we prone to be discontent? It's really unfathomable. Father in heaven, may these riches settle into our hearts and souls and minds. May we just even feel ourselves like we're just standing in a pile of diamonds and rubies and just letting them run through our fingers. May we, may we spiritually, Lord, just like we're just smelling fresh, brand new stacks of $100 bills. And it's just so much more than that. We thank you that you are the God of infinite riches and that you love to share. We pray today, God, for that person who is right now bankrupt before you. They have no righteousness to commend themselves to you. We pray for that person right now that they would see their poverty of soul, that they are blind and poor and miserable and wretched, that they are depraved and sinful. And we pray, God, right now that you would open their blind eyes. The scales would fall off and they would be able to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen.